Matt Hancock and Sir Gavin Williamson. Absolute asses. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now, the Pete Davidson of Politics podcasts. Rough, ready, not conventionally attractive, but seemingly irresistible. I'm Jacob Jarvis. If you're listening as a Patreon backer, there's a special event for supporters tonight, March 2nd, called Podcasters Question Time. Alex Andreo will be there answering your questions live on Zoom. If you're listening on Friday, you've missed out, but you don't have to next time. Search Patreon Oh God, What Now podcast for the opportunity to pick one of our panellists' brains later this month. On today's show, Rishi Sunak will have been grinning at the front pages, but wincing at the back benches this week. Willie Rue crossing Mark, definitely not stupid, Francois. Plus, houses are getting more expensive, but younger people have never been further from getting on the property ladder. Why aren't the Tories and Labour investing their all into property to win our votes? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, as festival season creeps closer, we ask our panellists, what is the worst event they've ever attended? Okay, let's meet today's panel. Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hiya. So a ton of WhatsApps Matt Hancock shared with Isabel Oakshot have miraculously ended up in the Telegraph. Among those texts were ones to former Chancellor and Standard Editor George Osborne. Have you ever considered using his Rent-A-Splash service? <laughs> I doubt he'd pick up the phone to me. <laughs> um, no? A fellow Remainer? The, but- well, the thing is, the Express, <laughs> on the other hand, just can't keep Best of Written off their no. front page. Um, but uh, when back in the days when we were uh, organising marches for a second referendum, um, the People's Vote campaign bought a wraparound of the Evening Standard to promote the march. I mean, that costs tens of thousands. And it certainly did pre-COVID. I don't know. Maybe they've had to drop their rates. Now fewer people commute and read the Evening Standard. But yeah, that gives you some measure of, you know, the value That's about uh, ten thousand times the amount Lebedev paid for the paper as well. There, so probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Oakshot. Can we just? But while we're on that, though, she. We're recording this on Wednesday. She was on Politics Live on Tuesday, and on it, she was accusing Ursula von der Leyen of being indiscreet. Yeah, and like she was, <laughs> she she will have known. As she was recording, that she'd just given the Telegraph all this stuff. And this is a woman that, you know, published confidential wires about Trump from Best Written Chairman Kim Derrick. He wasn't obviously Best Written Chairman at the time. He was the UK's ambassador to the USA. And Vicky Price ended up going to jail um, after Isabel Oakeshott uh, revealed her as the source. So... Come on, Matt Hancock, how thick and fame-hungry do you have to be? And then we're meant to believe she was uh, she was upset at being told to shut up by Jackie Smith as well, aren't we? <laughs> Aside from highlighting the barely visible door between politics and the media, what aspects of those revelations have shocked you the most? I think we all sort of knew how stupid he was, or sort of vainglorious or whatever, but just the, the sort of staggering naivety of somebody who was a minister, a secretary of state for such an important department to have such faith in all of these people that they had his back, that they were on his side. He feels like a kid at school getting uh, bullied who the popular kids ask to look at their Lego and then they smash it to bits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the text seemed to confirm that despite claims of a protective ring around care homes, Hancock prioritised politics over scientific advice, over wanting to save lives, 
And we do need the inquiry to report before a general election. That's something that all listeners should be pushing for, you know, writing to your local papers about it, writing to your MP about it, just keeping that pressure on because my fear is that the COVID inquiry will run on and on and on and voters won't get to know the full extent of how fucking awful these people were during the pandemic until after the election, which frankly I don't think is good enough. One thing we can all agree with Isabel Oakeshott on there then. Uh, Roz Taylor is Podmaster's contributing editor and host of our sister podcast, Jam Tomorrow. Hey, Roz. Hello. Michael Gove suggested parents of children who regularly skip school should have their child benefits cut. How exactly will making families poorer benefit anyone at all? Well, I mean, this is a bad idea that unfortunately comes up quite a lot. Um, in fact, it's not the first time Gove has proposed it, although uh, that was sat upon last time he tried it. Uh, Tony Blair actually proposed it at one point. Um, you might be surprised to hear. But in the end, they decided to issue fines instead rather mm. than docking benefits. So it would target you know, all parents of truants and all parents of mm. people who took their kids out of school to go on a luxury holiday, which occasionally happens, uh, rather than just the poorest. But it's it's... I mean, uh, it's iniquitous on, on a lot of levels. I mean, older kids, parents may not even be able to control truanting in older mm. kids. It's very, very hard to do. And after the pandemic, unfortunately, because kids spent so long out of school, some of them developed an absolute phobia of going back in. Mm. And that is something which is having to be overcome quite, you know, mm. quite, quite carefully with counselling and so on. But ultimately, it's a sort of bat signal that says we take the benefit serious system seriously and we make sure people aren't exploiting it. That's what he's really trying to say. Yeah. Should they actually sort of start dealing with the quality of education rather than this nitpicky you must be there? Thing. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, I got terrible acne and I used to skive school because I was embarrassed by how I looked. And that was really horrible. Aww. And so should they just sort of, you know, yeah. not nitpick these things? I mean, I've not turned out so bad and I skived quite a bit of school. <laughs> no, you seem to be managing OK now, yeah. to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I, I skived a lot of school, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I did not skive school at all. And look how I've turned out. No. Um, Neither uh, did I, but goodness knows what that says about us, Ross, yeah, <laughs> rather than anything else. Right. No, I mean, absolutely. It's it's a slow process sometimes getting these kids mm. back. And it requires a lot of investment. And it requires investment in the people who are going to be doing it. Mm. And those posts, usually in local authorities, have been cut. Mm. So it's it's a nasty, quite vicious and very, very blunt tool for achieving what he wants, and which is what we all want, really, mm. which is more kids back in school because the absence levels are still quite high. Mm. Nasty, very vicious, blunt tool should just be the way we describe <laughs> all Tory policy at the moment, I would say. Hannah Fern is a writer and columnist for the iPaper. Hi, Hannah. Hi. It's been shown that more than 2 million households fell into fuel poverty last year and the government is planning to ditch energy bill support. Is this simply a political choice at this point and is it just going to lead to an inevitable U-turn? It is a political choice. The reason that they think they can sort of get away with it is because we're heading into spring. So, you know, people hopefully shouldn't need their heating on as often in the coming months. And also they know that there's falling prices on the energy market that we're hearing about. So they think politically they can sort of carry on with the initial plan, um, despite the figures that you've just cited, mm. with uh, clear evidence that fuel poverty is on the rise. But the reality is that actually not only is there a delay in the time during which the, those lower costs are passed on to the consumer, so we mm. are still paying high prices, in fact, mm. um, if the, the, the cap is dropped, then they're going to significantly rise in the short term. Mm. Also, we're I don't know if you've noticed, but we're predicting another 
beast from the east in the yeah, next it's also of weeks. still so, really cold yeah snow yeah. is is due in the next fortnight so we will be having our heating on and we're going to face these higher prices so it is a political choice actually this whole measure has cost them less than they were expecting because of the uh slowdown in the price rises and on, on the actual energy market not the one that we access as consumers but the one that the, the government accesses so um they probably they can actually afford to continue the promise and they probably should and our sort of honorary cost of living minister martin lewis is making the very aggressive mm. campaign for them to carry on in fact he said in his own words that it would be an an act of national mental health harm to not roll back on its uh, initial plan to, to to drop the support now does it feel like a bit of an own goal really from the government when they're on the front foot with some things at the moment to then drop this when why not just plow on and build a little bit of support in a way they haven't been able to i mean i think the big picture is that the government's in such disarray i'm not sure how any individual measure will, will make that much uh, no. difference to their long-term prospects. But yes, certainly the goodwill that they are starting to amass this week, it will be undone if there's a huge headline on this in two weeks' time, yeah. First up, the legislative blueprint that sounds like a Gerard Butler film, The Windsor Framework. This is Rishi Sunak's attempt to bring together the factions that plagued his predecessors and get Brexit done again, again, again hopefully the final time again. Since the deal's announcement, he's been on a lap of honour, but will this joy be short-lived and will his chlorinated chickens soon come home to roost? Naomi, being cynical is kind of our thing, but let's suspend that for a very brief moment now. Objectively, is this simply a good thing for everyone involved, this deal? It is a good deal and we should all welcome it. Um, And broadly, it has been welcomed from a, a pretty wide-ranging, um, set, you know, cro- cross-section of the government's stakeholders. You know, not a single Conservative MP has yet come out and criticised it at the time of recording, which I think is is pretty unusual for <laughs> this current crop of Conservative MPs. And Best Britain coordinated a letter of seventy-eight business leaders um, who rode out to back it as well, because it's not only um, of significance to the people of Northern Ireland for whom it, it will have the greatest impact, but actually for businesses and their customers all across the UK and for UK PLC. And that's in no small part because of this reset of the relationship. And those business people were basically calling on the government and nod, nod, wink, wink to a potential new government led by Keir Starmer in the next couple of years to say, let this be the beginning, not the end of a much more pragmatic, calm, friendly, warm, open, united approach to uh, dealing with the EU. And I think what it also did was it showed everybody how flexible and generous the EU is prepared to be so long as they aren't being continuously attacked by the UK government and maybe that was part of their calculation showing the UK they can catch far more flies with honey than vinegar. Do you feel cautiously optimistic? I do and that's an odd sensation to feel after going without it for the last few years. I I do. Uh, Look when you when you saw this true lever I mean, Truss was a former Lib Dem and a Remainer. Johnson was whatever he thought would be useful to himself on that day. Soon, that true, true believer, um, that, you know, can't be denied. But standing there saying lovely things about our friends in Europe with the Union Jack and 
the EU flag behind him. It's been so long since we've seen a British Prime Minister happy to do that and happy to have that photo up um, and to say those things that it really did make my heart swell. Obviously, we've got to see what the what the DUP do and, and how they're likely to react. But at the moment, I think cautious optimism for a new dawn and a new era is important. Of course, what also is coming down the line is probably a deal for the UK to become a member of the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and, and sort of other trade deals that may bring a whole host of other problems for British traders, farmers, food standards, etc., But for now, in terms of the relationship with Europe, I do think we've had a good reset. As we record, how do you rate the the chance of the DUP actually going along with this? Well, I think it was a a pretty canny move by Sunak. Um, If the deal is going to be done over their heads and it increasingly looks like Tories are backing Sunak, the DUP are just going to look stupid for continuing to boycott Stormont uh, and not restore power sharing there over EU laws in Northern Ireland when being instalment is the thing that gives them the power to object to those laws. I'd, I'd exercise caution on one thing. Um, the Prime Minister said that this Stormont break would only be used for non-trivial issues and would function like the Assembly's petition of concern, which listeners may have heard of before. And that's where you need 30 MLAs of one destination, so either unionist or nationalist, to get a veto on anything. Now, the DUP love trivial issues. <laughs> um, they don't tend to deal too much in the non-trivial. They don't have uh, 30 MLAs at the moment, but they have done in the past and could do so again in the future. Um, and they previously used a petition of concern for exclusively inappropriate matters on everything from like road signs to equal marriage. And so under this, they're just going to need 29 MLAs and even more hardline TUV, that traditional unionist voice, to meet the criteria set out in this. Is there a criteria for the term trivial? Because that sounds quite a subjective term for me as well. It does, doesn't it? I I haven't had my star chamber of lawyers uh, scrutinise that (laughs) just yet. I'll come back to you. (laughs) Hannah, Sunak told his own MPs that the, the last thing the public want is another Westminster drama. Is that a bit rich from someone implicated in Partygate and the toppling of two Prime Ministers? <laughs> I mean, yes. Uh, what's interesting is that that language, another Westminster drama, it's all about him wanting to mark himself out mm. as different. This kind of idea of, you know, fresh start under him. He's standing there, as mm. Naomi says, with the EU flag behind him. But we haven't forgotten, I don't think most people have forgotten that he was part of all of this, not just part of Brexit, but part of the party who stood behind Johnson through scandal after scandal Mm. after scandal. So while it's kind of great that we're able to sit Mm. here and have a little bit more positivity today, um, it's it's kind of laughable that that he's standing there and saying, you know, the position of Northern Ireland is... fantastic opportunity for them and with no hint of irony as if he wasn't a co-conspirator for brexit yeah it it, that in itself is a small westminster drama yeah the government (laughs) putting out these uh, sort of graphics where it's looking at the old deal versus what we have now tearing it apart as if it wasn't the government's deal in the first place yeah i mean he he wants to separate himself he wants to make this a new Mm. thing his brand we haven't forgotten no (laughs) Roz, uh, Hannah mentioned there him talking up the deal for Northern Ireland and that it puts them in a, a very special position, which can unlock an enormous amount of investment. Is he is he simply taking the piss at this point, does it feel like? 
No, I don't think he is actually. I mean, this, this is a statement that infuriated a lot of people and mm. I don't blame them. To point this out, that Northern Ireland has a better deal mm. than the rest of the United Kingdom is galling, more than galling. Mm. And it relies on most people not understanding what the Northern Ireland Protocol was all about because yeah. it wasn't just a yeah. special arrangement, which mm. was the way it was sold, mm. but of course it kept Northern Ireland in the single market, admittedly for goods, not services, which is an important distinction, but nonetheless it did. And so Sunak's comment, I think, was trying to persuade the DUP that this Windsor Agreement is in Northern Ireland's economic interest, which, mm. of course, it is. But the DUP have always been about politics rather mm. than economics. Uh, if if they weren't about politics rather than economics, they wouldn't have insisted on a hard Brexit in the first place mm. or pulled out of Stormont, <laughs> you know, Indeed. or pulled out of Stormont mm. so that the Northern Ireland Assembly couldn't, can't even sit at all at the moment. Mm. So while it may seem a rational argument for us, the DUP have never actually operated on those terms. Mm. And I think even Sunak doesn't quite grasp the extent to which the DUP are beyond reason in mm. this. And, and this is, I think, is why he said or implied strongly that the DUP will not be allowed to have the last word on whether this goes through. Mm. Is Sunak kind of tacitly admitting here that Brexit wasn't about making things better economically? Because the difference here in Northern Ireland's position, obviously, is there isn't freedom of movement coming back. So, I mean, of course, if the UK could have had everything had in Brexit and ditch freedom of movement, I think that would have appealed to some Brexiteers there. So there's just that admission this was never about money. Yeah, I mean, we're closer to an admission now that Brexit never actually had to be a hard clean, mm. all those silly words, mm. Brexit. There were other routes we could have taken had people like Johnson decided not to hijack the project for mm. their own ends and decided to push it as far as they could mm. go, in Johnson's case, because he wanted to take over as PM, from Theresa May. And it's a tragedy that we let the personal ambitions of a few charismatic individuals mm. drive us into such a stupid venture. Mm. But that, sadly, is often the story of history. It's worth mentioning, of course, on the freedom of movement point when it comes to Northern Ireland, if you're born on the island of Ireland or a parent or grandparent is, then the Irish grant you citizenship. Like it, you, mm. you can apply for a passport if you want. Uh, and obviously, many, many thousands of Brits are. Um, but, uh, but you are deemed to be an Irish citizen. So um, a lot of people in Northern Ireland do have freedom of movement, um, as well as now being in the single market for goods. Naomi, on the on the mention of stupid ventures, as Roz said, supposedly the ERG has a star chamber of lawyers combing through the agreement. Will they find any sort of smoking gun in the legislation before Sunak can get it all through Parliament? So I was joking earlier, and I don't have a star chamber of lawyers, so I actually don't know. Um, uh, I rely on the brilliant Steve Pearce and his Twitter threads <laughs> to explain the legals of it all to me, and I commend his uh, Twitter account to all listeners who are probably already following him anyway. Um, you would hope that um, but the time they took from the deal reportedly being done to being announced that the government itself will have done a lot and a lot and a lot of legal stress testing of their own. I guess if the ERG Star Chamber do find issue with it, uh, Sunak, of course, is under no obligation to bring it to a vote. Um, mm. He said he will because the wind is in his sails. But remember, he doesn't actually have to. So mm. who knows? It, it, you know, it, it may not end up in a vote if mm. they do come up with something that uh, is a genuine cause for their concern. 
Roz, on predecessors and people that Sunak might have to face down, is Boris Johnson right back in the thick of things now? Well, I mean, he'd look very stupid if he tried to lead a rebellion of a handful of MPs on this one, wouldn't he? And I think he does actually realise that. It's probably time for Johnson to head off to Kiev, which is generally what he wants to do, what he tries to do when <laughs> things get tough. Uh, get on the sofa bed. <laughs> uh, I imagine he will now uh, hold off a bit until the main local elections. Uh, to see if he can spot an opportunity to remove Sunak at that point. But his prospects are looking far worse even than they were, you know, a week ago. Mm. Is it a classic case that he's probably writing two Telegraph articles at the moment and then he'll decide which one suits his cause the best? No, I think he's moved on slightly from that strategy, to be honest. Mm. Uh, I think he's hoping to sit tight and that people will lose interest in the agreement and something else will uh, start taking the headlines again. And apparently Sunak did have a phone call with him in which he asked him to pipe down. Mm. So I, what he may do is issue a short statement saying, uh, I have grave, grave reservations about this deal, grave reservations, but uh, friends have asked me to support this deal. Mm. So despite those reservations, I have decided to put the interests of the country first, blah, blah, blah. That would mm. be my prediction. Yeah, he seems to have a lot of friends who say exactly what he wants to say to the Telegraph, quite a lot. Yeah, it's really. lucky that he has such a, you know, so many pe- friends who, who can be rung up and who can give such a useful yeah. line to the media at any opportunity. Perhaps his friend Boris Johnson, who knows. Let's turn to someone who seems positively reformed. Steve Baker is walking around wearing beads like a sort of Tory Ram Dass. Should we reserve <laughs> room for redemption for these people whatsoever? Oh, God, no. I mean, uh, Steve Baker, it's just extraordinary. He, he, this interview he gave to Newsnight is is worth watching because it's very short and mm. it's painful, but it tells you an awful lot about Steve Baker and really how good he can be at turning almost any eventuality ultimately to his advantage. Mm. It was extraordinary what he was doing here because it was he was having a whinge about what a terrible toll this had taken on his mental health and mm. mentioned his beard and his jewellery. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just a sign <laughs> of, of something having a terrible toll on your mental health, is it? I, I have no idea. <laughs> there was a reference to what he called awful populism. When you've got nowhere left to go, you really have to frame your defeat as a triumph. Mm. And that is what he is trying to do. By his own lights as well, he has succeeded. He secured a harder Brexit than the majority of MPs or the public ever wanted. So he's probably realised that now is the time to decide that he, he will, he will place himself at the head of this revolution and claim that what has been achieved in the last few days is entirely down to him. Hannah, could this action on Brexit prove a challenge for Labour? Keir Starmer's been making making overtures about close ties with Europe, but if Sunak beats him to that, is he losing an edge, which when you're not really very edgy in the first place is probably something you don't want? <laughs> uh, Starmer, I feel for him a little. He's definitely got the trickier job mm. here. You know, Tories can decide that they're enlightened at this stage and in kind of a desperate attempt to claw back support in the um, constituencies they know they're very likely to lose in the South East or at least find themselves in, you know, very close run things in the general election rather than um, overwhelming majorities they have been uh, lucky to have over recent decades. But Starmer, of course, still has to have in mind the Red Wall. Uh, And, you know, of course, there are a large number of people in that area who still, they have concerns about you know, the economic mm. impact of what's going on when they're struggling to buy the vegetables they want and, you know, mm. the cost of living and so on, but still ideologically mm. feel strongly about this idea that Boris Johnson mm. and others um, uh, sp- spread around this kind of independent 
written. Mm. And so he just has such a tough and delicate mm. balance to, to manage uh, yeah. his position on this. The thing is, what marks him out from uh, Sunak is that we know that Sunak always believed that this was the mm. right thing. And as it's now unravelling, we mm. also know that Starmer said from the off, this is not the right mm. thing and, and, did, and voted against Brexit. Mm. So he's got the ideological purity if it mm. comes to the point where in 18 months all of the evidence and all of the data is showing us, which already is in fact, mm. but you know, when we come to actually vote, demonstrates what a catastrophic decision yeah. at leaving the EU was. Does Starmer sort of struggle by being a kind of known unknown? Because right now Sunak, we can see what Sunak is doing, what he will do. But the discussion around Starmer is this boogeyman, oh no, what could he do? Is that kind of a problem with those two facing each other? Yeah, I mean, so Starmer's tried to obviously set out a little bit more about what he mm. stands for in recent weeks, but it's kind of a bit dull, wasn't it? Yeah. It's nothing very inspiring <laughs> behind those kind of pledges. Um, but I don't think that 18 months out from an election, which is probably where we still are, that matters so mm. much, actually. There's a lot that will change between now and then. Mm. Um, some of it we can't predict, some of it we probably can. But I think he's got a lot of time to describe himself through a set of kind of sexier policies mm. and you know, kind of come forward and give a bit more of himself. I, I don't think it's a problem that we're mm. that he's standing back a little at the moment. On a sideline drama to this, we still don't know who put the invite out there for King Charles and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen when they met on Sunday. The meeting was done against the advice of the government, we are we are told. Is being snubbed by Liz Truss still stinging for Charles? They said it was against the advice of the government, but I'm just going to say you can't have it both ways in saying you're against that meeting, but also calling it the Windsor framework. Mm. It's kind of... It's also His Majesty's government, which just... So, I mean... They're lucky, I think, that most people have just kind of shrugged about this meeting. Mm. And those that have put up this, you know, uh, kind of uh, voice their concerns um, are largely attached to, you know, the, those that we knew would be objecting to this to, to this deal mm. anyway. And so want to find another reason to, to get exercised about what's going on. One thing that came to mind for me was, do you think people would have felt different about this if this was a meeting with the Queen? Mm. I think they probably would. Yeah. Um, it's the fact that it's Charles, people, he's still very divisive. People think he's a, mm. interferes in politics mm. in a way that he shouldn't. Um, and I kind of understand that instinct to kind of keep him out. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we don't know whether it was their intention, whether it was a bit of a backfired mm. decision to have it on the same day. But I don't think it's that big a deal for them. Despite all the positives in his lap, is this the sort of thing that shows Sunak is still struggling to get a grip on optics? Well, the thing about Sunak that, I, that surprises me that he's still so poor at is oratory. You know, mm. when he was standing up there presenting uh, this deal, which is a great win, he just sounds awkward still mm. and a little bit um, like a kind of exasperated teacher mm. <laughs> to me. I, that's how he comes across. <laughs> and he's trying so hard at the Blairite stuff with the hands, um, but it's really not coming out well for him. So I think that's he really needs to work on that if he's mm. going to... I mean, uh, let's be honest, we are heading for a Labour victory. So everything they're doing is about, um, you know, managing the decline. But he's got to do something about his presentation uh, if, he's going to, if he's going to change the polls between now and then. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Callum Ballard asks, all parties struggle with candidate selection as highlighted by the recent conviction of Jared O'Mara and by moderate Tories being deselected. Given that most people vote for party rather than person, what can parties do to help high quality people become MPs? 
Naomi, you have to work cross-party. Would it make your life a lot easier if we just rooted out the tossers? Yes, yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, look, you're, you're going to crack open this swear jar. I know you are. But if we had a proportionate voting system, I honestly think we would get far better quality people wanting to run who would take it all a hell of a lot more seriously, be less corrupt, be less self-aggrandizing and cozy and lazy in their safe seat for life and would work a bit bloody harder um, at at their job. Um, And I, you know, it's not the thing that cures everything, PR, but my God, it goes a hell of a long way. I'm sure some people will talk about, oh, we need to pay people better. You know, MPs' salaries are 80, whatever, thousand pounds a year, still not enough to attract, you know, great people into it. I, I, I maintain that if you change the voting system, it'll have a really, really, really beneficial impact because a lot of the reason why people don't go into politics now, good people, is because it is seen as such a grubby profession. So the I'm swear jar now that. is mentioning PR a Labour government, because we might jinx it, and calling Mark Francois stupid, because it is a lie, so you can't say it. Uh, Hannah, how do you think this could be done practically? Is an issue that being an MP might not really be that attractive a proposition for people who are actually qualified to be MPs? Yeah, I mean, what qualifies people to become an MP and, uh, you know, get into the position where they can actually stand, it at the moment is toadying up to the party system. Mm. So that's just not attractive to a lot of the right people. Um, I would really like to see uh, a kind of headhunting system where the parties were going out into the sectors where they know the sort of people who would support uh, their, you know, their goals and ambitions. You know, Labour should definitely be looking, in my view, within charities, within public services, local mm-hmm. government and so on, um, to find people who would potentially do a really great mm-hmm. job at this. Um, you know, and Tories, at the moment, we've got this kind of PPE Oxbridge Powell system for them. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a situation where they're ageing out candidates because, you know, we've seen the statistics that show virtually nobody under 45 is now um, a conservative supporter. So they've got a diminishing pool. So they should be thinking about going out and finding, you know, people in business all over the country who would potentially share their their kind of ideological goals. But they're not doing that. They're just, again, it's a kind of toadying system. Um, And, you know, Naomi has said it. I do think personally that paying more would help because once you have got the right people within this system, Actually, it is a 24 hours a day job that you can probably only sustain for a person a certain amount of time. Also, if you're doing it well, you have zero work-life balance, which has huge implications for women with children, well, and men with children, parents, mm. uh, anyone with caring responsibilities. So it's not, not just parents, mm. people with you know other responsibilities in their lives. And I do think that money helps with that because the money does help you manage those other responsibilities. Hannah, where I completely agree with you is on the barriers to entry. And you, if you, you know, are not going for a safe seat, but maybe a marginal seat that's coming up and you might be able to unseat the incumbent opposition party person, you probably have to give up work for a minimum of six months, probably a year before polling day. And you have to knock on doors pretty much every day. And so the opportunity cost for people is a year's foregone salary. Now, the vast majority of people who don't have wealth cannot do that. They simply cannot do that. Particularly all those people you talked about, those with caring responsibilities, 
parents, etc. So we we do have to find a way to compensate people for that. And I do think you should be paid to be a candidate if you don't have the means to to self fund for that period of time, because otherwise we're just knocking out brilliant people who, you know, the only barrier stopping them is is the fact that they're not rich. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Ros, you spoke to Stella Creasy for a bunker lately. What she say about getting people into politics? Well, she's been uh, getting her influence behind a campaign, a Labour campaign called Mothered, as in Mother Red, spelled, which is basically funding women with fairly young children to stand as Labour candidates. Mm. And one of the women who's benefited from that is actually Miata Van Buller, who's mm regular guest on oh god what now as as we know and it's a very good idea because it is i mean we saw only a few days ago there was a tory mp uh, theo clark from stafford who was deselected by her constituency association a week after she came back from maternity leave basically mm. because she had gone on maternity leave and they had, were so unhappy about this and they just couldn't couldn't deal with it at all and of course people like stella creasy have been very pioneering in uh, actually daring to take mm. Uh, maternity leave and daring to try to take a baby into the hallowed walls of the Houses of mm. Parliament, things like that, which has made some progress. But ultimately, as Naomi says, it is about money too and about having enough money to pay for childcare. Mm. And when you've got that problem as well as the loss of income from not working, you really are in difficulty. And so I, I think it's a really good initiative and it'll be fascinating to see who else who else emerges from it. And also it'll be very good to have the voices of mothers of young children in Parliament because that is one of the reasons why we don't have any decent childcare policy in this country. <laughs> I could not agree more. And also uh, think of the, the abuse that Stella Creasy received for daring to take her breastfed mm. tiny baby who mm. was completely silent into the chamber so she could participate and do her job that she been elected to do and damned if she didn't damned if she didn't because of course you're just getting pregnant and taking maternity leave you get all the criticism for but then you're not you i elected you to do your job and now you're taking time off so whether she took the time off or came back in with a tiny baby she was going to get criticized i know and so to hear those voices uh, at least we would have somebody else kind of echoing support for for those uh, taking those those risks and how and how depressing to describe them as risks but they are I try to call my mum at least once a week and in our, one of our latest conflabs, the topic of housing came up and I told her I might never be able to buy where I live in London, which is one reason why she might be waiting a very long time for grandchildren. Her touching but, but quite depressing response was that, well, me and any kids I have would always have a home that we'd own eventually when she's dead, that is, basically. Uh, as rent spirals and more people come to the realisation they might never get on the ladder. Neither the Tories or Labour seem to be providing much of a long-term solution. Why aren't they making this their focus to win votes down the line? And is the housing crisis going to develop into a societal split, the likes of which we've never seen? Hannah, Keir Starmer announced his five big plans for the country last week, and none of them were about housing. Is this on a really basic level just political miscalculation, even removing any of the human element from it? It's a real head-scratcher to me, this one. And I do think a huge political miscalculation. Mm. There were pieces in the press on both the right and the left asking that question, mm. why isn't it there? Um, it is a massive problem. It's a massive infrastructure problem. The cynical 
side of me thinks that he didn't put it in there because he doesn't need that demographic. You know, like I mentioned earlier, we know that younger people Mm. are the people priced out of uh, home ownership and also facing huge rents Mm. and all of those uh, um, additional pressures on their finances as a result and poor quality housing, all of those things. But they are mostly voting Labour. Mm. So right now he doesn't really need to speak to them. But I think that's a mistake because actually their parents care about this. Mm. So, you know, it's not just about young people who aren't able to afford to buy. That's a small proportion of the people affected mm. by the current UK housing crisis. You've got pensioners in social housing that's in poor, quali- mm. poor quality. The, the, the issue is much bigger than just getting on the housing ladder. And it looks to me like a lack of understanding of the size of mm. the problem from both the Tories and Labour. Mm. But to see Labour miss this one... It was really disappointing yeah, and I, actually quite surprising. I, I would have uh, – it makes me question the quality of advice going yeah. on in the room there yeah. about what should be on that list. I think it kind of misses a bit of the working class mindset that there is this hope that your children will do better than you have done. So even for older voters, they want to see their see younger people succeed because that's part of the social bargain we have. And I think for working class people, that's something they really want to – to witness. I mean, I've been writing about housing for God knows nearly 20 years now, but I remember really clearly in the 2010 election, people saying housing is finally an issue, an electoral issue, because the people are talking about it on the doorstep because you're opening the doors of homeowners and mm. they are saying my child can't afford to buy their own home. Mm. That's 13 years ago. And yet we're still here where it, and the crisis is so much worse mm. than it was 13 years ago. And yet it's still not in that list of five things. And and compounding it, the social care crisis is so much worse than it was and is only set to get worse because of an ageing population and an iller population. And those who think that, oh, well, one day maybe when I'm 50 or 60, I will inherit my parents' home are for the birds because the chances are their parents will have to sell that property in order to fund their care in old age, as is increasingly the problem. And, you know... I've been through it in the last couple of years with a, a dying parent who needed um, to be in a home for a period of time before their death. And you are looking pre any kind of extra dementia care or anything like that between two and three thousand pounds a week. Yeah, that takes the equity out of a house in no time. <laughs> and no you know, if you if you do try to keep your parents at home and rely on the local council to come in and look after them, yeah, yeah. what a joke! Good luck with that. Except it's not a joke; it's actually tragic. Mm. Are we going to see a, a divide then within generations? Do you think that it's kind of your access to to equity almost is dependent on how old your parents are and how ill or not they happen to be? And essentially, if your if your parents die sooner. And having been healthy before their death, you may be in a better financial position in the long run than in other yeah, terms. Yeah, I mean, which this is, is horrible, but already the, the case actually. Mm. Um, so, I mean, as you described, many now people in their forties may, may never buy. Mm. So, as we go through the decades, they won't be able to pass that equity on to their children, and so on. So, it, it's already a kind of um, uh, two. Uh, two-tier society in that sense. Actually, there was some interesting research from the um, IFS 
came out about two weeks ago, which was looking at the size of large gifts given by family, given within families. And it predicted that this year, 2023, 17 billion will be handed out in informal gifts. Mm. And most of that is given by parents in their 50s, 60s and 70s mm. to children in their 20s and 30s, largely at a point in time where they're going through some significant life stage. So marriage um, or having a child or purchasing their first home. And that number, that, that sorry, that figure of the amount of money being handed across like that is rising every year. But what's really kind of scary about the impact that's having in terms of creating this kind of two-tier system in the housing market is that the wealthiest give 26 times the amount the poorest can mm. hand down. But even within that, the wealthiest of the wealthiest are giving the majority of that money. So only 5% of the households making those cash transfers were giving out half of the total being handed down. Um, And that means that the Bank of Mum and Dad is really distorting the housing market and large numbers. I mean, it's still small in terms of the overall number of people buying their own home, but growing numbers of uh, parents are basically giving their children enough cash to buy a property outright without a mortgage. And we've got a situation where the housing market is is now being um, uh, distorted by cash purchases, so people who will don't even need to borrow. Mm. And, um, you know, I've spoken to uh, state agents and property speculators who tell me that a growing number of those are young first-time buyers. So, I mean, that just shows you the scale of the problem. Well, inheritances passed on in the UK amount to over £100 billion each year. What possible excuse is there for not taxing that much money? Well, there isn't. And of course, it it is taxed. Um, Inheritance tax, it's a fascinating one, really. There are two answers here. The first thing to say is that people really hate inheritance inheritance tax. And that cuts across most classes, really. People really, really hate it. They see it as a death tax and they see it as paying tax twice. Mm. And they think when they're passing on money, it should be a gift. And what right has the taxman Mm. got to touch it? And the more insecure they feel, the more they feel that property is the only thing on which they can rely and they can't rely on the state anymore, the more they hate inheritance tax. So the second thing to say is that basically with inheritance tax, you pay 40% on estates over the value of £325,000. So nowadays that is dragging in more and more estates because, of course, the value of properties has Mm. gone up so much. And in fact, IHT receipts are steadily going up for that reason. They were up uh, 0.9 billion uh, to 5.9 billion in 2022-23 for that reason. So the amount of IHT is going up. But... That said, the richer you are, the more likely you are to successfully avoid paying inheritance tax Mm. because there are, if you have the right financial advice, basically you can shelter and trust and lower your money and basically make sure that people get the majority of it and it doesn't go to the tax tax, uh, government. So it's a really hard thing to tackle because, uh, as I say, so many people hate it, really hate it. It's the most hated tax there is. Hannah mentioned earlier that it seems like Labour kind of take young people for granted. Do you think that they have taken them out of their electoral calculations? And have they announced anything at all that would benefit generation rent, as it were? They have actually. And Lisa Nandy, of course, is in charge of that brief. And despite the fact, as Hannah was saying, that it didn't make it into Starmer's missions earlier this week, There's quite a lot there. There's a renter's charter. There's a new decent home standard, which is really important because so much private rented property is in a terrible condition and mouldy, dangerous to live in. 
And they want to abolish Section 21 no-fault evictions, which mm. is quite important too, where basically your landlord can, can kick you out without a reason. And they want to extend the length of notice period to four months, which gives you more time to find somewhere else to live. Plus things like a right to own pets, which isn't guaranteed at the moment. And for first-time buyers, they want to, to bring in a mortgage guarantee scheme. Now, of course, that does have the risk of overheating the market again, but uh, uh, as, as all schemes to help first-time buyers do. But there is quite a lot there. And I, uh, yeah, I was a little perplexed as to why Starmer didn't make more of it when he spoke. Mm. Naomi, on the electoral calculations here, how much does a poor housing market affect the way people vote? For the last four decades, at least, conservative politics has, to a large extent, been based on this goal of having a homeowning democracy, giving people an, an achievable capitalist goal, an asset to protect and, and pass down. And of course, Thatcher famously turned a huge number of people into Tory voters by making them homeowners, selling off council housing stock under the right to buy scheme that was then not replaced. And so 40 years later, the Conservatives have undermined that electoral strategy. Uh, to keep homeowners sweet, they have not built new houses. Uh, you know, they've, they've restricted planning laws. They've given in to NIMBYs. Um, and the byproduct of that, of course, has helped to keep house prices inflated. In fact, I, I don't think any Tory chancellor, bar maybe one, I'm, try, I'm struggling to remember my history here, but the vast majority of Conservative chancellors stoke up house prices just before an election. It's just what they do. But it's coming back to bite them because homeownership is increasingly unreachable, more and more people feeling locked out of the housing market, homeowners with kids feeling it too. They know that they're probably not going to be able to pass those on. And so these these policies are appealing to fewer and fewer people. Um, and, you know, Hannah was dead right at the start when she said this isn't just a supply issue this is a quality issue in many parts of the country very very low quality housing stock in some areas and i think it's part of so much i mean we have to bust this myth that the conservatives know what they're doing when it comes to the economy it's them who have trashed the economy time and time again it's them that are causing rents to go up because interest rates have had to go up meaning the borrowing for the buy to let landlords has gone up and they're passing that on to tenants which compounds this already terrible system of, of shortage of supply in areas like London and the Southeast where there is such strain on rental property already. So yeah, uh, they are absolutely terrible with the economy, not just with uh, the, the housing market. Though it has to be said that the Labour government in the Blair years and, and Brown years also failed to meet housing targets and build anywhere near the volume of homes. In fact, it, the last prime minister that did do proper mass state-funded um, house building was Macmillan. So we're going back best part of a century these days. There's a lot of talk about the, the red wall, but if left-wing Londoners are being pushed out of cities into more conservative suburbs, could that mean more people voting Labour in what were normally Tory heartlands. So is there maybe a little bit of a electoral silver lining there? There is some of that. Um, so not and not just Labour. So you take somewhere like Cambridge, highly educated uh, workforce, um, those you know young professionals unable to get on the housing ladder within Cambridge itself, moving out to South Cambridgeshire, which was the seat that Heidi Allen uh, fought um, for the Lib Dems at last election, having defected via 
was it via Change UK and the Tiggers um, from the Conservatives, that is now very much a Lib Quad marginal because of that demographic shift. You've got similar situations in, in other constituencies around the country and boundary changes may have a little bit of an impact on that too. I think also the, the pandemic and the shift from um, office presenteeism to home working has allowed more people to leave urban areas for a you know good life in the countryside and a, a more rural and therefore typically conservative seat where they may bring those centre-left progressive voting patterns with them. So it will have an impact. I just don't yet know the full scale of it outside a handful of seats but the direction of travel could well be could well be that it's nearly the end of the show so what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week uh hannah what's yours well this is one that i honestly would have not noticed at all were it not for the fact that i happen to have a friend who's living and working in tunis at the moment in tunisia there's a really troubling complete rollback of the situation around the arab spring um that's really gone largely unreported uh in the in the national press here um president kais saeed has for a couple of months now uh been arresting political opponents and jailing them so we're talking about people like journalists um trade unionists and so on People have been dragged from their homes without warrants. Really troubling stuff. Uh, but in the last couple of weeks, um, well, I mean, this, is, this has largely been done, um, of course, to distract uh, from the fact that um, under his presidency, there have been rising prices, fruit, food shortages, um, failing public services and so on. But this has taken a, a, an even more frightening turn in, in the last um, couple of weeks where he made a speech about a crackdown on um, basically black African migrant residents uh, around illegal immigration. And there's been that sort of rounding up now of of um, black Africans in Tunisia. Um, people are reporting being attacked on the street. People are living in fear of violent assault. Uh, and um, yeah, the, you know, the, he he. This has all been provoked by a speech that was made in which um, Said talked about a conspiracy to change Tunisia's racial makeup. So it's taken a very dark turn, and we have heard very little about this. Uh, no, I've not heard home, and, and and obviously Tunisia was this kind of flagship for you know the, the great mm, progressive change. So sad, yeah. And I wouldn't have have known about this if actually a friend of mine who is a listener to the to the podcast as well mm. um, had hadn't told me about it. So one for us to all watch. Mm. Uh, Naomi, what's yours this week? Um, it's funnily enough related to housing, um, but also uh, climate change and environmental concerns. And that's that the government had this flagship green heating scheme where I think it was called the boiler upgrade scheme. And it was allowing people to claim up to £5,000 uh, in a grant to switch from an inefficient gas boiler to this low carbon heat pump, um, which would of course have the effect of helping reduce people's energy costs over time as well as being absolutely brilliant by comparison to uh, gas for our our climate change ambitions and the environment. But um, a Lord's Inquiry, House of Lords Inquiry uh, this week has absolutely slammed the government for a serious failing because hardly anyone has taken up the grant. And so the national target for green heating is, they say, very unlikely to be met. And basically, it was uh, the government, you know, get get the headline, announce this grant, um, but then make it nigh and impossible for people to access it. 
no marketing campaign around it to try and drive take up so they'd get the kudos of it without actually having to spend the cash uh on on the grants so yeah good good on the lords for calling them out on it and um now the government has been forced into promising it will launch a mass a, a national marketing campaign to go with it Part of the problem with that scheme as well is that even for those who did try to take it up, the truth is it's actually not financially viable for a lot of um, existing properties because of, you know, they're old, they're leaky and so on. And for a large number of uh, properties in the UK, it's actually more expensive to use a heat pump than it is to have a gas boiler. So you'll be paying higher bills. And so when people have done a kind of test on this and they've worked out whether it makes financial sense for them, they've chosen not to go go through it. Um, Meanwhile, we're building very little social housing and that that we are building, we're not putting heat pump technology into brand new social housing. But that was an amazing opportunity to stick it into the kind of stock housing stock that this kind of tech supports. So, yeah, yeah complete uh, failure of, of any kind of strategy. Uh, Roz, which was yours? Well, I'm doing the edits on my book about the future of trust at the moment. I'm sure you'll hear about that again in due course at yeah. some point. <laughs> uh, but that means that I'm going back to something called the Edelman Trust Barometer, which comes out every year and is uh, basically a look at how people around the world in a sample of about mm. 80 countries think about trust. And so the 2023 one is absolutely terrible. It's just <laughs> people like trust on so many levels is falling off a cliff and in government especially, although it's holding up in business, which is very interesting in many ways. People nowadays trust businesses far more than they do governments. But the one that really struck me, the stat that really struck me here was what I would call the Good Samaritan one, although they don't. If a, It says, if a person strongly disagreed with me or my point of view, I would help them if they were in need. And 30% of people, only 30% of people said that they would. <gasps> and there, there was, it was even worse, would be willing to have that person who I disagreed with as a co-worker. It was 20%. Would be willing. Wow. Would be willing. Would not work. You know, one in four in five people do not want to work with someone whom they disagree with. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it makes society just impossible to maintain when you I mean, have I that degree of tell, intolerance. I can't tell this story in detail for obvious reasons, but I know of an example where that has occurred already within an office where someone I know works, where the, a person has refused to share a desk with someone who disagrees with them. Yeah, I hear it anecdotally a lot that people are leaving work for this reason. Well, Jav, what about you? Did you spot anything? Yeah, well, mine, I'm going to... Finish as I started as a skyver who went to the 118th best university in the country <laughs> I found the day, uh, by uh, talking about the, the California man who set a world record by visiting Disneyland for 2,995 days in a row, which I don't really know how you set a world record for that because I can't imagine any, no fucking person has done anything close to that before. Uh, I just thought it was a very sweet story that he started out, he was unemployed and his... Uh, Someone suggested it's a way for him to leave the house and get some exercise, and then he just really loved it and kept going. And yeah, I hope if I if I ever get made unemployed, I hope I deal with it in such a such a fun way as well, and do something just commit to uh, commit to the bit like he did. That is very uplifting, Joe, and and you know, Quite motivating too. Yeah. yeah, and I'd also just like to throw in the finding today from Ipsos Mori that one in ten. Britons think that aliens are going to arrive in the next year. <laughs> so we've all got something to look forward to. I say bring them on. <laughs> yes. And that's the show. Thanks so much to Roz. Thank you. Naomi. 
Thanks very much. And stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. Hello and many thanks from me for your generosity to Jane Fitzgerald, Ray Clear and John Lane. And a big shout out from me to these marvellous people, Adam Heppenstall, Andrea Goldsmith and Lissy Edwards. Hello and all our thanks to Debbie Bourne, Robin Murphy and Darren Ferris. And finally, a huge Oh God What Now thank you from me to Suzanne Wilkins, Paul and Cameron Ong. Oh God What Now was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Hannah Fern, Ross Taylor and Naomi Smith. The group editor was Andrew Harrison with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Reese. Our departing marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, as spring threatens to make an appearance, the festival season feels closer than ever. As group chat invites flood in, I was sarcastically sent a link to buy tickets for an event which truly boggled my mind. The the private members club, Soho House, is getting geared up for summer, announcing the Soho House Festival, which, uh, if you're used to the cosy confines of actual Soho, might as well be on the moon. You can't just go if you fancy it, though. You need to be a Soho House member, or at least friends with one who will take you along and stump up over £200 for the privilege, plus even more for the real VIP treatments as a a sort of gated community within this gated community. Last year's festival was attended by A-listers such as Ollie Murs and Jamie Redknapp. It's uh, (laughs) it's pretty pretty box office. Uh, Hannah, is this a product of the the post-pandemic rise in experiences? I, I hope that no one sends me an invite to that. It sounds horrific. I don't know, this experiences thing, I think it predates the pandemic, actually. Mm. I, you know, the, the kind of secret cinema where you go along all dressed up and they act out the film before you actually get to watch the film and all of that. Mm. That was kind of in full swing um, before um, the pandemic. But I do think there's this sort of sense of wanting to do something really special when you do go out now. People aren't, you know, mm. spending so much on just going to the pub anymore. Yeah. We've all got a little bit used to the sofa and Netflix, haven't we? So it's got to be something yeah. worth spending your money on. I don't know, may- maybe it's just a sense of... Feeling like you want to make sure you're you're not you're not wasting uh, cash mm. at the moment. We're we're certainly in a situation where no one can afford to be splashing it about. Yeah, yeah. I just don't like the idea. I mean, I feel like I am wasting money when it's just very forced fun. If someone yeah. tells me something's going to be fun, it probably isn't going to be fun. Would be my my takeaway. Uh, Naomi, festival bookers seem to be quite fixated on on nostalgia acts at the minute. It says the Sugar Babes, S Club Seven, and Steps all back in a big way. I actually saw S Club Seven <laughs> at my university, and it was two of them. I mean, they didn't brand it as S Club Two either. It was just Which very two? strange. Which two? Can you remember? I can't, I can't remember. I'm sure that the blonde guy was there. I think. No, because he's quite famous, isn't he? H, so I don't think... He's from Steps. That's Come Steps. On. If you're oh, going to discuss this, you've got I to... Don't, I don't know then. I, I, was, <laughs> I went to the 118th best university in the country, as I've said. I was, you know, I wasn't wasn't paying much attention. Was uh, it 118th when you went or now? No, they it is now. They should, they should fucking refund me. I've, I'm really quite annoyed by it. It was 50-something when I went there. It was, it was bad but average, and now it's like the third worst in the country. DMU. <laughs> <laughs> no, should there be a German word for kind of enjoying things that are a bit crap what like kitschfreude yeah like taking (laughs) joy in the kitsch yeah i think i think that could catch on yeah yeah Yeah. i mean 
we talked a lot about nostalgia on this podcast over the last uh, five years or however long we've been running. And I know that Ros and I have certainly had many a, a show where we've talked about the perniciousness of nostalgia um, and its influence on our body politic and, and how we've ended up in this situation now. But I also just find it like quite sad that, that that we're clinging to bands that weren't particularly great at the time now and what does that say about the quality of acts that are able to break through and and become good now I don't know there's lots of musos involved in the podmas as well that will tell me how wrong I am but um yeah I don't know I just I'm not one for nostalgia at the best of times and I just don't think S Club 7 and Steps are the best of times, but original lineup Sugar Babes 100% are. Yeah. <laughs> Ros, you recorded a bunker lately where you, you discussed influencers in it. Is there a sort of online to real life doom loop which has given us all these these shit events which are basically just content opportunities? Yeah, maybe. Of course, I was talking about Mr. Beast and his philanthropic turn. <laughs> I enjoyed that because, you know, Mr. Beast used to be banned for my son, but now he's unbanned. No. And he's so pleased. <laughs> I couldn't keep it up after actually having a whole pod about Mr. Beast to continue banning him. Anyway, yeah, it's certainly true there seems to be there seem to be very few events that can exist solely in real life. Yeah. And um I would actually pay to go to something that it was guaranteed. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll get, our, you'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week.